of Acts is the story of the unstoppable grace of God through Jesus Christ to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Beginning from the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the book of Acts proceeds to build a beautiful bridge between the four Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. In a very real sense, the book of Acts is an unfinished book. God continues to write the story through his people today. here we are. Uh, we have been journeying through the book of Acts for roughly the last year. And kind of the way we do things here at Mosaic is we love to go through books of the Bible. And sometimes we go straight through. Sometimes we'll take little breaks. So our first year went through the book of Genesis, second year, book of Luke. Now we've been going through the book of Acts, breaking up with little series. And so we've gone through the last 11 chapters over the, much of the last year. And we're going to dive into chapter 12 today. Uh, have you ever had trouble communicating. Um, probably if you're alive, you've, at one point or another, you've had trouble communicating. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, that when Chris and I were dating, we wanted to have good communication, and um, it's hard to believe, but the people didn't really text a whole lot back then. So we actually called each other on the phone. Crazy, I know. It wasn't FaceTime, it wasn't anything. We actually called and uh, I remember we were dating, and we were talking on the phone, and I was telling her all about my day and how I had had a one-on-one with my boss's boss, and we are talking through about my upcoming week, and I was like, yeah, it's a really big week. I'm, I'm really excited. I'm telling Kristen, you know, I got to go to this conference. I'm doing this thing, and then this thing. And then I, you know, then I told him that I was planning on proposing to you, you know, this weekend. And I just kept talking. I was like, oh, my word. I just told Kristen I'm going to pop the question this weekend. And she acted like it, nothing happened. And then that night, we were at youth group uh, as youth leaders. I said, you heard what I said. She's like, what? No. And I said, oh, now I'm going to change the timeline on, on proposing to you. She's like, it's not my fault you messed up, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, but she eventually did say yes, so that's good. Um, but, you know, we all have differences in communications. Like, sometimes, you know, it feels like, man, we should be so good at communicating because nowadays we do have texting and Facebook Messenger. And we have, you know, uh, the new thing, Marco Polo, which my wife seems to do with her sisters all the time, sharing videos, or Snapchat, or again, some sociopaths still call each other on the phone, you know, and to communicate. It feels like we have all these methods of communication, so we should be communication experts. And I think prayer is a lot like that. We feel like prayer should be something that we're just all experts in. It's like, man, especially those of us who have grown up in the church, maybe you've been around it for a while. You're like, I've, I've seen people pray. I've been around prayer for so much. You know, I know I'm just talking to God, but maybe you don't feel like a pro at prayer. You know, this week, as I was preparing for today's message, and I knew we were going to be talking a lot about prayer, and I read about some of the great heroes of faith, like Martin Luther and John Wesley and John Fox. And these guys would spend hours each day in prayer. And, you know, when I read that, honestly, instead of being encouraged, like, well, look what they could do. Honestly, I find myself getting discouraged, like, man, I am not there. I don't know, maybe you feel that same way. But what I love about God is that God meets us where we are and then slowly moves us along into deeper things. If you're taking notes this morning, you, you can write that down. Like, wherever you are today on your journey, whether you're just 
checking out who God is and, and Jesus and the Bible. Maybe you've been following him for a little while. Maybe your whole life you've been a follower of Jesus. And wherever you are on your journey, God meets you where you are. And then he invites you to deeper things. We never arrive. We never get to this point of saying, man, I am a fully devoted follower of Jesus. I have my graduation certificate, and I'm never going to get any you know, better and, and I'm never going to love people more than I am right now. Wherever we are in our journey, God meets us there and then invites us along into deeper things. See, I've gone through different seasons where I've run more and, and run less. Right now, I'm definitely in a season of running less. Kind of get back into it. But even occasional runners like me, like I'm not just going to sign up for Grandma's Marathon tomorrow. And same thing with you. Maybe prayer is something that you, you're not super comfortable with. You don't feel like you're an expert in it. You can't expect just to become an expert tomorrow. Wherever you are, you can take that next step. And just like people who are going to plan to run Grandma's Marathon or if they want to go out to Boston, wherever it might be, you start with that first step. And my hope, my prayer today is that wherever you are in your journey with God, wherever you are with prayer and connecting with God, that God will meet you this morning and, and invite you to take that next step, move you into deeper things. See, I believe that if we continue to work at this spiritual discipline, and it is a spiritual discipline of prayer, that we can expect that a year from now we can pray with greater authority, greater understanding than we do right now. It is possible to learn to pray with more effectiveness. See, prayer is not just something for the spiritual elite. It's not just, oh, those people, they have the gift of prayer. Prayer is for all of us. And it is possible for all of us to grow in our ability to pray. See, I think sometimes, though, we go to prayer, and I think some of us get discouraged and defeated because maybe you've been taught that the whole universe is already set, and God has everything perfectly worked out, and so nothing can change, so why even pray? Well, honestly, the Bible doesn't teach that. People all throughout the Bible prayed as if their prayers could and would make a difference. See, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 that we are co-laborers with God to help determine the outcome of events. It's really more the Greek philosophy of Stoicism or what I think and sometimes I call Christian fatalism that demands a closed universe with everything preordained. God has already picked out what socks I'm going to wear. God has already preordained every little thing in my life and now I'm just a robot living it. That is not what the Bible teaches See, God has devised prayer as a means of enlisting us as participants in the work that he has ordained. As part of his sovereign rule over all. And here's the reality. We need to live in this mystery and this tension. And our Western minds have trouble with this, but this is the tension we live in. Number one, that my good God, he rules, he controls, and ordains all things for my good and his glory. And number two, God invites me to pray to him and promises to respond to my prayers. Our God is sovereign. He is in control. He has ordained things. And yet he invites us to pray. He invites us to partner with him. And it's a tension that we just wrestle with. We just say, you know what? I, I don't have that all worked out. My good God is in control. And yet he invites me to pray. He invites me to participate with him in his saving, redemptive work. And hopefully the idea that our prayers actually can change things is a liberating idea. 
It also sets a tremendous responsibility for each and every one of us. <coughs> we are working with God to determine the future. <coughs> if someone could grab me a cup of coffee, that would be awesome. A warm beverage would be really good in my throat. So, thank you. Give my wife a hand. <coughs> so, why are we here as a church? Not just Rice Lake, but why do we exist as a church? <coughs> we exist to help people follow Jesus. We exist to reach the lost at any cost, to help you love and serve and multiply followers of Jesus. And the only way we're going to accomplish this audacious mission is if we're fueled by the Holy Spirit and fighting our battles on our knees. Andrew Murray was a South African pastor <coughs> and writer, and he said this, the man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelism in history. I believe God wants to do something greater when it comes to prayer in our church than what he already has done. <coughs> I believe that the best is yet to come. See, when you study history, every major spiritual awakening, every revival, every big movement of God has been preceded by the people of God on their knees in prayer. By his church, Mobilized with persistent, consistent prayer. <coughs> uh, Samuel Chadwick was born in the industrialized northern part of England about a hundred and some years ago to a devout Methodist family. His father worked in the cotton mill. At the age of eight, Samuel joined him with 12-hour shifts. Then at the age of 21, he became a lay pastor, preaching the gospel he had this radical encounter with the Holy Spirit where God just transformed his whole life and transformed his whole understanding of the power of God. And here's what he wrote in his book, The Path of Prayer. He says, the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, <coughs> prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men and women of power. It brings fire, it brings rain, it brings life, it brings God. There's no power like that of prevailing prayer. Can I get an amen? I believe God has more for our church, more for our city, more for you personally, more for your family. But we're not gonna get there apart from prevailing prayer. I want Mosaic to be church, known as a church that is known for persistent, consistent prayer. Well, for last year, like I said, we've, we've covered the last 11 chapters of Acts. We're going to be diving into Acts chapter 12 today. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, your Bible app. And really, for the most part, things have been going really great for the early church. You know, 3,000 people got saved on the day of Pentecost. Then in chapter 4, we saw that Samaritans, these what were considered kind of half-breeds, they follow Jesus. They get filled with the Holy Spirit. Then in chapter 10, the Ethiopian eunuch gets baptized by Philip. 
<coughs> sorry, chapter four. Saul of Tarsus then has this radical encounter with a living Jesus. The Roman centurion Cornelius and his whole household, they get baptized with water and then filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 13, next chapter, we're going to see Dr. Luke is going to talk about Paul, the greatest missionary perhaps the world has ever seen, and his start of his missionary journeys. But before we get to that, Dr. Luke, our author, is going to chronicle a serious setback. The death, the murder of one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. And then the imprisonment of another. See, throughout church history, the pendulum has swung between expansion and opposition, growth and shrinkage, advance and retreat, with the assurance though, that the powers of sin and death will never prevail against Christ's church. We're going to see here that King Herod is going to be used by Satan to strike at the church. Now, when it comes to King Herod in the Bible, it can be a little confusing. So just a quick history lesson. So first you have Herod the Great. So that's the Herod when Jesus was born, that when the wise men came and they said they wanted to pay homage to the new king of the Jews, Herod was very threatened by that. Herod was crazy. Herod was like a mafia boss. He actually had his own private pool where he'd have uh, family members and others that were political threats, and he'd drown them in the pool and just say that, oh, accidentally they had a, a pool accident. That's what he did. Uh, that's Herod the Great. Then he had a couple kids, and they kind of divide up his kingdom, and Herod Antipas was one of his sons, and he's the one who put Jesus on trial, and he's the one that uh, beheaded John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Then there's Herod Agrippa, and he's the grandson of Herod the Great, and his uncle was Herod Antipas who killed John the Baptist. And Emperor Caligula and Emperor Claudius had given Herod Agrippa more and more territory in the Palestinian kingdom, where now his kingdom was as extensive as his grandfather's, Herod the Great. And just as his uncle beheaded John the Baptist, he beheads James, one of the original 12 disciples, the older brother of John, the disciple who called himself the one that Jesus loved. So the church has been doing great, and, and now the first of the original 12 is murdered for his faith. James has been killed. Let's, let's read in chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, Passover feast. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people presumably to kill Peter as well. So James is going to be the first of the 12 apostles to be martyred. Peter has been arrested as well and planning to be executed after the holiday. The same holiday weekend where the Jews are celebrating that God led them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Peter is in chains and in bondage in jail. The irony, Dr. Luke doesn't want, doesn't want us to miss this. The situation looks bleak. James has been killed. Peter is in jail, ready to be killed. It seems hopeless. It seems like there's no possibility of Peter's escape. There's these squads of soldiers who are guarding him. What could this little community of Jesus followers in all their powerlessness do against the armed might of Rome? When our lives seem dark and hopeless, what do we do? Where do we turn when someone we love is trapped in bondage in a cycle of addiction or mental illness or physical 
illness. What do we do? How do we help when it feels like we have nothing to offer? Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. When all hope seemed lost, when they didn't know what to do, what did the early church do? They got on their knees and offered earnest prayer to God. Another way to translate that is they were praying fervently. It's actually the same word that Dr. Luke in his gospel wrote about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was sweating drops of blood because he was praying so earnestly, so fervently. That's what the early church is doing. That is how they are praying for Peter. What do they do when everything seems hopeless? The early church is earnestly praying fervently, believing that God can do a miracle. The power of the church is the power of prayer. Verse 6, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, Peter, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, poof, and a light shone in the sail. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. This is actually a very strong word for struck. So I don't know if the angel's holding like a golf club and he hits him or if he just kicks him. I don't know, but I love it. Like he's, Peter won't wake up. He's sleeping soundly. So the angel kicks him in the side. He's like, wake up. And he says, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Poof. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. I have no idea why Peter was sleeping naked, but here he is. And he did so, and he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He thought, oh, I'm just dreaming all this. When they had passed the first and the second gate, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, like just like, poof, it opens up. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, not Jesus' mom, but the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and praying. So the early church, they're gathered in their summer house group, and they're praying for Peter. Why does Dr. Luke, our author, take the time to tell us whose house they're meeting at? In the first 11 chapters, we haven't met this Mary. We haven't met John Mark. So why is Luke telling us this detail? Well, here's what I think. I think it's that Dr. Luke wants us to know that everyday, ordinary church attenders, not apostles, not church staff members, are leading this house group. Mary, she's a leader in the church. She's opened up her home. She's saying, yes, come gather. They're doing you know, barbecue. They're, they're praying together. They're hanging out. Everyday, normal followers of Jesus. Verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, like an outer courtyard, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. <coughs> Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So here's Peter like, okay, they're out to get me. They want to kill me. He's knocking. He's like, hey, it's Peter. Let me in. She's like, oh, Peter's here. She leaves the door locked, runs to go to everyone else. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. Now, I think it's so funny. Dr. Luke is trying to show humor here. The church is on their knees praying for Peter to be released. And the little teenage girl runs out and she's like, God's answered your prayers. They're like, no way, it's not possible. Like, they're praying for this and the answer to the prayer is right there. They don't believe her. 
But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, well, it must be his angel. They think that he's been killed. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. He's like, finally, let me in. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he's like, calm down, quiet. They're like, how'd you get out? How'd you get out? He's like, you'll never believe this story, but you gotta be quiet because they wanna kill me. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James. This is an act to now that James, the brother of Jesus, who became one of the leaders in the early church, and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Peter's like, they're still gonna kill me. All right, Mary, you're gonna lead this house group. You've got it for the summer. I'm out of here. I'm gonna go somewhere else. And when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers. These are professional, you know, like Navy SEALs or what had become of Peter. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered they should be put to death. Now, one of the details of why Luke is telling us this is he's saying, all right, this wasn't just that the soldiers were bribed. It wasn't just that they just kind of let him out. Because if they had just let him out, the price of that was their death. So it really was a supernatural intervention of God. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. <clears throat> now, got a weird end of the chapter. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Uh, Josephus, a historian, says his robe was filled with all these uh, like golden circles. And it was very like a shiny robe. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. When, when the sun came up, and it was like a blazing sun. And, and it said he was a, this amazing image. And they thought he was God. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied the chapter starts with James killed, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. And it closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. That is the power of God and the power of earnest prayer. Amen? I want to see three things here on the rest of this morning that we can learn from the way that the early church prayed. And I believe this is how God wants us to pray as well. And my hope and my prayer is at the end of that, that the word of God increased and multiplied. Regardless of having to move locations, regardless of whatever else comes against us, we are going to be a church that prays, amen? So that the word of God can increase and multiply. Number one, things I want us to learn about prayer is they talk to God about their worries. They talk to God about their worries. See, they were afraid of their future. They talked to God about it. They were afraid for Peter and what was going to happen to him. Uh, Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, uh, he's the one that translated the message version of the Bible, which is an amazing devotional uh, version. If you want to read, it's like a paraphrase. He's an expert in ancient languages. He wrote a bunch of great books as well. Uh, I love that he pastored one church for uh, 30 years. Uh, he planted the church. And the church never grew bigger than 500 people because he believed in just staying put. But he wrote this, this great book called Answering God, How to Pray the Psalms. And he points out that in the Psalms, there's really two kinds of prayer. And I'd never heard this before. I thought this was good. He, he says there's evening prayers and morning prayers. When you go back to Genesis 1 and you see how God created the world, the rhythm there is slightly different than our normal rhythms where um, a day is from the time we wake up to the time we go to sleep. 
But when we see in Genesis 1, it says that evening and morning came, and God said it was good. I think there's something important in there, that even while we're sleeping, that God is working, and that we can trust him. And so Eugene Peterson says that there are evening and morning prayers all throughout the Psalms. Eugene Peterson says that if we want to grow in our prayers, a lot of times our prayers become stagnant because they've been removed from the soil of God's word. And if one of the ways you can grow in your ability to pray is to pray the Psalms, to learn to pray uh, the way that, that David and others prayed. And so, number one, we have evening prayers. Evening prayers is marked by praying your worries to God. A good example is Psalms 4. David commits to God the things he's worrying about, the people that are bothering him, things that are making him angry or sad. He's reminding himself of the promises of God. And then morning prayer. In, in Psalm 5, it's active, petitionary prayer. It's where you pray boldly against the things in the world that are not right. Evening prayers are where you pour your heart out to God, your heart of worry to God the Father. Morning prayers are where you boldly advance God's kingdom. I think really in Acts 12, we're seeing both that. And throughout the book of Acts, we see the church sharing their prayers and their concerns with God, as well as boldly praying to advance his kingdom. I think if we would learn to develop this practice of evening prayer, of being honest with God about sharing our worries, our fears, I think for all of us it would give us such a sense of peace. Here's how David ends Psalm 4. He says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. See, when I share my fears and worries with God, I can go to sleep. I'm someone who I can lay in bed and my head is just spinning and just my mind. I gotta be honest, Friday night, I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking through like, okay, how's kids checking gonna work? How are we gonna do this at the new building? Well, how are we gonna move in one week? What's this all gonna look like? And, and I need to give that to God. And when I say, God, okay, this is yours. My job is faithfulness. Your job is the fruitfulness. Then I can lie down and sleep when I understand that I'm talking to the one whose arm controls the universe, the one who said that no good thing would he withhold from those who trust him, that I'm talking to the one who cares for me like a good, good father, and when he knows when hairs from my head fall out or when they start to turn gray, the one who promises to direct all my steps and to lead me into righteousness for his name's sake. I want to encourage you, if you aren't, to develop this practice of evening prayer, of giving your worries, your concerns over to him, of sharing those. Maybe you journal them. Maybe, maybe you just want to pray them, this, this evening prayers. Uh, this winter, uh, I, I like to read a lot, and I read this book called The Four-Hour Workweek. Anyone else read that book, The Four-Hour Workweek? Uh, it's a good book. I read it because, you know, I want to cut all my weekly hours in half, just down to four, right? Pastors only work one day a week. Uh, that's a joke. Uh, but in there, he talks about, you know, how to be more effective, and he talks about hiring a virtual assistant from, like, the other side of the world, like from India. He says, you can hire these assistants to take care of all this stuff for you. you know? And so while you're sleeping, they're doing all this work, this admin work, then you wake up and, wow, they've done all, all this work for you. And so he was developing different businesses and, and, you know, and launching them, and, and, and he's up late worrying about all this stuff, and he's like, you know, I'm going to try something. I've been delegating all these tasks and responsibilities to my virtual assistant. He's like, you know, I'm going to ask her if she would worry for me you know, from like 10 p.m., until 6 a.m. 
So he contacts her and is like, you know, hey, I owe more tasks for you. Would, would you be able to worry for me overnight, you know, from 10 p.m. till 6 a.m., so I don't have to worry about that anymore? And she's like, yes, sir, I'd be glad to take down that task and that responsibility and worry for you from these eight hours, you know. And so he did that. And, you know, it's kind of silly, but he was able to just say, okay, I, I, someone else is going to be doing the worrying for me. I don't have to do that anymore. Now, that's silly, but the reality is that is one of the reasons God tells us to rest, to go to sleep. When we go to sleep, it's trusting and saying, God, this is in your hands. That, that you have this. I'm not going to worry about this anymore. I'm not going to carry this. This is for you to carry. That's why the principle of, of Sabbath rest, of one day a week taking time to say, I'm going to pray, I'm going to play, I'm, I'm not going to worry, I'm not going to work. It's trusting God with these kind of things. You know, <laughs> and maybe this will have a, a dramatic influence on your life. You know, Peter, I love it, he has put his trust in God's hand and he's sleeping naked, chained between two guards, trusting that God's going to take care of him. And so maybe if you start a practice of evening prayers together with your spouse, that'll help you in your marriage. You might end up sleeping naked, chained together. You never know. Uh, so number two, they understood prayer is a weapon of war. They understood prayer as a weapon of war. What do we see the church praying about throughout the book of Acts? The mission. To take the mission of Jesus to the ends of the earth. John Piper, uh, he has this great quote. Actually, Bradley posted this, I think, yesterday. Uh, but he says, Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when you try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Until you know that life is war, you cannot, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. Until you know that life is war, that we are in the middle of a battle that the armies of sin and death and Satan are out to kill and destroy your marriage, your life, everything, but God has the ultimate victory. Until we understand that we are enlisted in this battle to help push back the works of the enemy, that we are not on a cruise ship, we are part of a battleship, amen? Until we know that, we don't understand what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. And this is what morning prayer is. Morning prayer is the active, petitionary prayer. Morning prayer is the rebellion against the stand, status quo, saying that the way the world is, the darkness, the racism, greed, injustice, that is not good. That is not the way the, God designed the world, amen? And so we pray against injustice, against racism, against greed, against addiction, against people living a life without purpose, of people that are so drowning in, in depression that they want to end it all. We say, no, that is not the way that God designed the world. And so we come to God and we say, God, we know this is not your plan. And so we bring this for prayer. We, this is a wartime activity. See, the early church knew that it was God's plan to spread the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth, regardless of what King Herod wanted. They weren't sure how it was going to happen. They didn't know if Peter was going to live or die but they knew that God's purpose was to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so they got on their knees and said, God, make it happen. We trust you for how you're going to accomplish it. We are agreeing with you, God, in prayer that the gospel is going to spread, however that is. You know, honestly, though, a lot of our prayers are just kind of average 
or honestly just kind of dumb sounding. I think so many of us, we just fall into cliches and platitudes, spending time asking God for things he's already promised us. And, you know, sometimes we just, like, we think if we say his name over and over again, that's going to help. But, you know, like, that's it's silly. And I'm not, I don't want to pick on anyone today. But, you know, like, if you're like, Eric, you know, I just, Eric, I just want to ask you that, you know, next week, Eric, as we, you know, move to Maple Grove Middle School, Eric, that you could just, you know, make sure that we get the word out, Eric. Wouldn't that be great, Eric? Like, right? I'd be like, dude, stop it. You know? And so as a community, as we learn to grow together, you know, if you have someone who just keeps, you know, doing something annoying and they're praying, like give them a little nudge or, you know, teach them, hey, you don't have to say just all the time. God, we just want to say just, 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 you know, don't do that. You know, sometimes though we pray like, God, be with us. God's like, I promise to never leave you or forsake you. Like you don't have to pray that. He's here with us. You know, or God, help me with my test. God's like, I gave you a brain. You should study, right? (laughs) All the parents clap. Or God, bless this food. I do this too. But God's like, hey, you're eating a half pound hamburger with bacon on it. Like I can't bless that. Go eat some asparagus. That's pre-blessed food, you know? Or God, give us traveling mercies. It's like, God's like, what is that? I don't even know what that is. You know, he's like, my traveling mercies are put your seatbelt on and stop texting. You know, that's your traveling mercy. If you want to grow in prayer and you feel like you don't know what to say, then start praying the Psalms. Start praying from the book of Proverbs. Start praying the word of God. It'll help you grow as you pray. Pray scripture. Claim the promises of God. We need to reorient our prayer to focus on praying for the advance of God's kingdom in the lives of our family, in the lives of our community, and around the world. John Piper says, until you know that life is war, you'll never know what prayer is for. I love that that rhymes because I'm a pastor who loves things that rhyme. Number three, they were persistent like the widow. What? What widow, Eric? Well, I needed one more W, and this works really well. So, In Luke 18, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. He tells this crazy story. He says, one day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. I didn't put this on the word, so you just have to listen. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. And the judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she's wearing me out with her constant requests. Now, if I came up with that example about prayer, you guys would be like, Eric, you're preaching heresy. But Jesus says this. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of God returns, how many will he find on earth who have faith? Jesus is saying, when you pray, don't give up. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, be persistent, pray earnestly, don't give up. The early church knew that it was the God's will for the gospel to get to the ends of the earth, but they had a problem. One of their main leaders had just been killed. The other one is in prison. They're not sure if Peter's going to make it out or not. So they kept at it. They said, God, you have to make something happen. We're not going to let you go until you open doors and bless our efforts and overcome our adversaries because we believe the gospel needs to be advanced. And they kept up at it. They kept at it. Do you know it's not God's will for Satan to destroy your family, to destroy your marriage, your hopes, your dreams? 
And so if you feel like you're coming under attack, if you're facing opposition, if the enemy is attacking your mind, your body, your spirit, that is not God's will and plan for your life. And so be persistent, pray earnestly, keep coming to him. See, sometimes God answers no when we pray, but in general, I think far too often we give up way too easily when we pray. And see, every time the church prayed in Acts, every time they were persistent and praying earnestly, things happened. In Acts 1, they pray in the upper room for 10 straight days, and the Holy Spirit falls in them. Peter preaches, and 3,000 are saved. In Acts 4, they pray, and God fills them with such boldness that they turn the city of Jerusalem upside down. By the end of Acts 5, <coughs> the church is over 10,000 people. And some of the harshest critics, the Jewish priests, and eventually Paul himself, who was killing the early Christians, they become followers of Jesus. Here in Acts 12, they pray, and they blow open the doors of a prison. They strike down Herod, their persecutor, with worms. In the next chapter, they're going to pray, and God raises up Paul, one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known. <coughs> the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. <coughs> it brings fire, it brings rain, it brings life, it brings God there's no power like that of prevailing prayer. Samuel Chadwick. How's your prayer life? Mine can be a lot better. Maybe yours can be too. I want to be this kind of follower of Jesus that I don't give up, that I keep praying, that I keep asking because I believe it is God's will that his gospel is spread. I believe there are more people here in Maple Grove and the surrounding areas who need to meet Jesus, who need to experience the true power of the gospel, that they can find hope and freedom from religion, freedom from shame and addiction and bondage. There are functional addicts living here who need to be broken free by the power of the Holy Spirit. There are children growing up without a dad, with an abusive mom that needs a place like Mosaic Kids back there where they can learn about Jesus. They can learn that there are good, safe adults who care for them that will change generational curses. I believe there are teenagers in Maple Grove Middle School and Osseo and the high schools that are being bullied, that are dabbling in drugs, sex, doing things they know they shouldn't do. And I believe God has put us in the city for a reason. Man, I don't want to just play at church. This is a wartime activity. The stakes are real. 
people's eternal destinies are at stake? Are they going to spend an eternity with God or separate from all goodness, all truth, all love, all light in eternal darkness? There are families who are on the verge of breaking up. Unless we reach out to them, how will they know? There are a lot of great churches in Maple Grove. I love that I get together with most of the other pastors once a month, and there's eight, nine, ten of us that get together and we pray for our city. But you know what? Even if all our churches exploded and quadrupled in growth, there would still be 20,000 people who don't know the love of Jesus in Maple Grove alone. It's a big task. Jesus says, look at the fields. They are ripe. The harvest is ready. But the workers are few. Because we forget this is a wartime activity. We just get so caught up in, in our own pleasures and life. And I, I get it. Man, this week has been crazy for us. We had like a million baseball games that I'm coaching with my son's little league this week. And Kristen was traveling and it's been nuts. And yeah, that's life. But one of the reasons we gather together on Sunday morning is to remind ourselves that, man, life's not about us. We serve a great God who invites us to participate with him to make a difference. Man, we've seen dozens of lives changed here at Mosaic already. We've seen marriages that were healed. We've seen people healed of sickness. People finding purpose and freedom. Are we just done? No, I believe the best is yet to come. Next week starts a new chapter, a new location, our third location within four years. It's a little nuts. But man, I believe God wants to do something. But you know what? It's not going to happen without prayer. And it's each and every one of us. Here's my encouragement to you. What's your next steps? Maybe it's reading a book of prayer. Uh, Rihanna Arfston, she wrote a book talks about prayer as well as other things, I want to encourage you, grab a copy of her book. Or, or you know, if you've read that, and there's other, there's other books on prayer, I'd love to help encourage you. Just find that next resource. Say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow more in prayer by reading that. Maybe I'm just going to read through the Psalms and pray through the Psalms. Number two, meet with a prayer mentor. Chris and I, we'd love to sit down and meet with you. Hey, we don't have it all figured out, but we've learned some things about prayer over our years of following Jesus, decades. Justin and Rihanna, who lead Freedom Culture and Ministry, we're connected with. They've offered as well to say, hey, anyone wants to sit down across the kitchen table with us and ask questions. Hey, how can we, how can we grow in prayer? How can we get just more comfortable in this? How, how do we understand just more of how we can pray? Sometimes reading is great. Sometimes meeting with a mentor to just walk you through that is, is helpful. And so you can sign up for that in your connection card and we'll put you in touch with the Arfsons or with us or someone else and just say, hey, we, we just want to learn and grow in this. And then number three, join a summer house group. Again, I know we're all super busy over the summer. But the great thing about the house groups that we're saying is, hey, come when you can. Look at your calendar. Over your summer, which night of the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, do you have the most nights available? Hop in that summer group, and when you can, come. And then commit to praying with the people in your group. Commit to praying for the people in your group. Spend time when you can, coming together and say, hey, we're going to pray together. We're going to develop these spiritual mothers, muscles together. It's like being part of a group exercise program. It's so much more effective than by yourself because you have other people stretching you, encouraging you. You're learning from them. 
That's one of our hopes for these summer house groups, that together we're praying with each other, we're praying for each other. And we want all of us, again, maybe you're new to prayer, even at your summer house group, and it's like your turn to pray, just be like, God, I never pray, this is awkward, amen. That's good, that's your first step, that's fine. God meets you where you are and slowly leads you into deeper things. I'm gonna invite the band to come up. We're gonna close with one song. Now, here's the tension we live in, right? We can all grow in prayer. We, we can learn how to connect with God through prayer more. We can, we can read books. We can be encouraged by each other. And yet, God is sovereign. God meets us where we are. And here's what I love. What was Peter doing? How did he earn his freedom from jail? He did nothing. He was just laying there, naked, sleeping between a couple guards. And what did God do? God broke those chains. God opened those prison walls. In our helplessness, in our inability to save ourselves, God steps into our story to do what we could not do. Maybe today you just feel a little helpless. Maybe you feel like you're in some kind of prison, some kind of bondage. Maybe you just feel like you're stuck at a place in your spiritual walk with God. And you're like, man, I've been plateaued for a long time. I'm in a season of dryness. Trust that God is the one who breaks the chains, that God is the one who opens prison doors, that we don't have to do that for ourselves. Our job is to receive, to accept from him. As the band does this final closing song, we're gonna receive our offering, but I encourage you, even as we receive an offering, to just receive this song. That if you have chains, that he is the chain breaker. You don't have to strive any longer. Just receive his free gift. To say, God, I believe I receive. God, I believe I receive. God, I believe that you can break these chains. I'm putting my hope and my trust in you. Would you stand with me? Let me pray for you. We're going to receive our offering and then we're going to go out of here. <coughs> God, I thank you that you are the chain breaker. When all hope seemed lost, when, when Peter was locked up in prison with, with chains on him, as the church prayed earnestly for his freedom, for the expansion of your gospel, that God, you stepped in and you intervened. So God, I pray for the Peters in this room. Those who feel like, God, they're just stuck. That there's no way out. They feel there are chains on them. God, I pray right now for each and every one in this room who feels that way, who feel hopeless. That as they look to the future, they don't know what to expect. God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would come, that you would break those chains. You would lead them out of slavery, out of bondage. You would heal, redeem, restore. And God, I pray for all of us as a church. God, we would be persistent in our prayers. We'd give you all our worries. We'd understand that prayer is a war, act of war. That prayer is our weapon. That's how we fight our battles. And God, that we'd be persistent like the widow. That we'd keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking, that we would not give up. God, I thank you that you are here. You are with us. God, be with us now the rest of this week. Next Sunday as we meet at the middle school. God, as, as house groups launch this week, let us gather together. Let us 
have fun, let us encourage each other, and also just together as a community learn to pray. In your name we pray, amen. I'm gonna invite the ushers to come forward. <coughs> We're gonna receive an offering, uh, and let's go out of here, and I hope that this song is just an encouragement to your heart.